This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Downey. This week's guest is Dr. Sally Rocky, Executive Director of the Foundation for Food and Agriculture. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. Learn more at chsinc.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Dr. Sally Rocky next. In rural America, there are three things that never change. The land, the determination of the families that farm it, and the loyalty of their co-ops, which provide the markets, inputs, and agronomic expertise farmers and ranchers need to stay profitable. CHS, the nation's leading cooperative, is proud to connect member cooperatives and producers to the value of an energy, grains, and food company they own. To learn more, visit chsinc.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Established in the 2014 Farm Bill, the Foundation for Food and Agriculture was created to further the work of the USDA to identify and investigate researchable questions for agriculture. Dr. Sally Rocky says the FFAR seeks partnerships to double the taxpayer investment in food and agriculture research. For every dollar that we invest in a project, we bring in a dollar from either the private sector or other organizations that are non-federal. So it's a very innovative way of um, providing for innovation and science. And also, we are a foundation, we're a 501c3, so we are not a government organization, so we have a little flexibility in the way that we do our business. Um, we can adapt to things rather quickly, and we, again, bring this matching model that is, is really unique in agriculture research. How are you guided by leadership? We have 21 members on our board, plus we have five ex-officio members who are four from the USDA, including the Secretary of Agriculture, the Undersecretary for Research Education Economics, the head of the extramural, that means the grant program, NIFA, and the head of the intramural, that's the government um, research program, ARS. And then our board is composed of industry members, academic members, other foundations, and farmers and producers and other stakeholders. We just had our past uh, chairman of our board, uh, former Secretary Dan Glickman, step down, and our new chairman is the president of Mississippi State University, Mark Keenum. So it's an amazing board. They give us a lot of direction both programmatically and also operationally into our organization. We also work very closely with the community. So we have many convening events where we bring stakeholders and academics and producers and farmers together to talk about what are the issues and what issues should we place our funding on and where we can really advance science and have some science that's going to impact the community as readily as possible. Speaking of funding, how are you funded and how do you seek additional dollars? So we are funded through the Farm Bill, through the mandatory side of the house to the tune of $200 million. And with that, we have to bring in another $200 million. We bring that in from traditional fundraising methods that you think of a foundation. But we also go out to the community and find those organizations that share our goals and objectives and who are willing to fund. And we then will jointly fund projects together, and that's also considered our match. So we can do it in a number of ways, both the traditional fundraising route as well as, as forming partnerships and funding partnerships. Then, Sally, how do you see your mission in the midst of so much public research through USDA, through land-grant universities, and as well as the mountains of private research that are in agriculture now, where do you fit? 
So WeFed is bringing the two together. So that's really our goal is to bring public sector research together with private sector research. And that way we can pursue our shared goals and objectives. And it also stretches the dollars that are publicly available for research, makes it larger, and brings more people to the table. So we also then can um, decide collectively as a group, when we work both with the private sector, with other foundations, and with the public sector, how we want to head in a certain area of science. So that ability to facilitate a collective decision-making about what areas of science are more most important are, is, a, is a big part of what we do. Is there a timetable for research results? Well, we talk about our research with actionable outcomes, but as you know, research can take quite a bit of time. So we have some, most of our grants will uh, be in the form of about four to five years, but we have some where we have much shorter time frames where we're trying to get results out as quickly as a year. In agriculture research, we have the great benefit of even very basic science and agriculture oftentimes is implemented more rapidly than in other scientific disciplines uh, simply because we're looking at ways that we can change practices or build new technologies that can be directly transferred to farms. So um, we see that usually the time frame for uh, science having an impact is, is shorter than some other fields, but it still can take some time depending on the type of research you're funding. I had a conversation a few years ago with Mae Jepsen, uh, an astronaut and, and scientist in her own right, and she said she was concerned that the, there was such an emphasis on return on investment with research that perhaps the scientific community wasn't willing to make investment for the long term, for the long run, for the answers that, that society would need? Well, it is true that I think that um, when you're deciding on what types of research you fund as a, either a public entity or even as a, a private entity, you have to take into consideration what is what we call basic science versus more applied science. The basic science is, is the more long-term science, and what that does is add to the knowledge base, and the applied sciences are where you take that basic knowledge and apply it out into the field. Now, you have to have a really strong knowledge base because you oftentimes don't know where the next great discovery is going to come. And some research that may seem esoteric or not necessarily directly related to something like an agricultural issue may, in fact, have an enormous impact in the future. So it's important to balance that between your funding of basic science and more applied sciences those so that you always have that strong knowledge base. So when we think about the 14 Farm Bill, obviously Congress is coming up to writing new policy. Will you have to fight for your life in that, or do you think that there is a <laughs> commitment here to allow you, again, for the long term, to continue to work and to improve agricultural systems? I think that as a community, I think all of us really have to uh, work together to make a case for the value of research in the next Farm Bill. We're a new model, but we're not a, I don't believe we're an, just an experiment that hasn't reached its conclusion. I really believe we're a new institution, a new kind of structure that is going to take us into the future and help us solve some of our future problems in agriculture. So, first of all, I encourage everyone in the ag community to be a champion for food and ag research, uh, both in the public sector and in the private sector. And I also want us to think about what's going to happen to our foundation as, because as of next year when the, the discussion of the farm bill is proceeding, we will probably have expended most of our original $200 million. So as I said, we don't want to be an experiment left incomplete. 
So we think that we'll have demonstrated our value not only because of our doubling of the money that the taxpayer invested in, in us, but on the great science that we're pursuing. Some of your mission fields include food waste and loss. Sometimes perhaps we don't need to produce more but make the most of what we have. Right. Absolutely right. And um, so we, we, in general, it's been stated that we may lose up to 40% of our food either on farm, through transport, or, or um, at the retail end, or even through the consumers. So exactly right. We can do things differently that would, for one, reduce food waste, but also cha- change our ability to increase things like yield or to increase the nutritional content of food or to change our practices so that we are producing uh, plants that are more uh, resilient to their environment. So all of these things are about doing it differently, and we can take advantage of what we have and uh, make sure that uh, all of it is as useful and as used as possible without um, dramatically um, uh, changing the economic position of our farmers. So. Your point is really well taken. So one of our areas is food waste, and we're looking particularly at the um, where it happens on farm and also where it happens at the consumer level. Talk about the protein challenge. So in our protein challenge, as you know, by the year 2050, we may have to feed 9 to 10 billion people around the world. So we want to think about how we're going to produce the protein that we need um, with uh, uh, the, to feed the world without increasing the, econ- the environmental impact of, of our protein production. So we have to do, uh, uh, we have to produce more protein, probably on the same amount of land or, and or with the same amount of impact, and so how do you do that? So we have two approaches here. One is to look at animal production and how we can make that as efficient and, um, and uh, as possible, and the second is to look for alternatives to animal uh, proteins that would be available worldwide to feed this burgeoning population. Um, one of our first programs that we launched in our protein challenge was an animal welfare and productivity program, and um, we're looking at ways that some of the new consumer demands for how we produce um, animals, such as cage-free chickens, can lead to certain issues um, with their production. For example, cage-free chickens tend to break their bones more easily they do things like have this behavior where they pile. That means they all jump on top of each other and they can break a lot of bones. And when you break your bones, you have lower egg production or not as high quality production. So our first program is to really look at that. And a large part of this is what consumers are asking for and how we're going to do animal production differently than we have in the past. Sally, it seems more and more farmers are talking about uh, a pending issue for them, and that's water. Uh, it seems like this spring we either have too much or too little, but mm-hmm. most to suggest that uh, one of their biggest concerns for the future is going to be having enough water to produce crops that the world needs. Yes, and water use efficiency and, and uh, dealing with water scarcity is one of our challenge areas. There's a number of places that we're focusing on in that challenge area. First and foremost, we want to make um, plants as water efficient as possible. That means that we want them to be able to grow and produce the same amount of yield with less water. So we have to understand plants at their very fundamental basis, um, understand how we can use new technologies such as gene editing or other types of technologies to produce plants that either have deeper roots or are able to take in more water 
um, under um, uh, less, uh, a less rich water environment. Secondly, we want to look at how we apply water. So we are very interested in irrigation technologies and how we're going to promote the best irrigation technologies that will allow the minimal amount of water necessary to produce a great crop. And then thirdly, our third area that we're interested in this is how we can potentially reuse and um, uh, recycle water so that um, we can get uh, more use of the water that we have and continue to use it um, as a, to produce a high-quality crop. So we're very interested in that area. This is an, a, an extraordinarily important um, area for not only farmers here in this country, but for farming all around the world. When I think of crops and I think of food and food production, traditionally the field and the farmer, but you've also spent some time looking at and researching urban food systems. This, again, is another area that is really a hot topic because with the large urban areas, we're looking at ways that we can produce food close to urban environments and or in urban environments. So there's two areas within there that we're very interested in. One, of course, is to look at how we grow food in contained spaces. There's a lot of new work with vertical farming and other types of contained farming that can happen um, in urban environments. But to do that, it means that we have to understand what crops would potentially work well in contained um, environments and how we get all different sorts of crops to work well. Right now, most of the crops that are grown in contained environments are leafy greens, but we certainly, with new advances in science, can can um, expand that to other crops as well. Uh, secondly, we're very interested in looking at plants that are crops that grow um, in in um, marginal environments. So a lot of um, environments around a city or within a city may be marginal as far as their soil quality or their access to water or what um, could be contained in the soils from um, previous uses. This also could pertain to um, non-urban environments as well that are along coasts or along different parts in rural um, counties where the the soils and the um, uh, the land may not be as, as good as it would be in other places. So this is called marginal environments. We're very interested in understanding how we can grow crops in marginal environments and get some high-quality crops in those areas. Do you think the yield from urban food systems can make its mark? Well, well, it's left to be seen. Of course, when you um, grow things in vertical environments, you can't grow, of course, the acreage that you can grow Outside, but you can get, for example, um, many more seasons. Um, the classic example is, for example, lettuce, which you might get three uh, three crops a year out in the field. You might get ten crops a year in a greenhouse, but in a vertical environment, you might, and under certain conditions like either um, hydroponic or aeroponic, you might be able to get up to twenty crops a year. So you probably are never going to get the same um, quantity as you would in a field, but you may get you may be able to um, come close because you can get many more crops during one season. Uh, but that, that's one of the things that we want to study uh, with with these uh, vertical and other contained environments is how we can get the most out of these um, what are considered small places in our in our view of agriculture. Are you able to find partners to look into these various missions of research? Yes, I mean, I think some of our areas are easier than others, um, depending on where we are and what industry is 
is interested in. Most of the time, if we're more on the fundamental end, so for example, understanding some very basic plant processes such as nitrogen fixation or photosynthesis, we're likely to to partner with um, other foundations to fund um, more basic research. An example of this is that um, we we um, have a cover crop initiative that we recently announced with the Noble Foundation, um, and they to look at how we can provide more resources for cover crops and what we call germplasm, which is seed and um, tissues, because there's just not enough to do um, more res- to uh, conduct research to create new cover crops. Um, we have a foundation where our animal welfare is with the Oprah Philanthropy Project, which is another foundation, and we have partnered with the Gates Foundation. Now, when we are looking at more technological, um, technologically advanced projects where we're producing new technologies or we're looking for new breeding protocols, we oftentimes then will partner with industry itself, um, with some of our major seed and chemical companies or with um, food companies to pursue that kind of research. So it really depends on the on the type of research, what type of partners we get. Oftentimes we have a mixture of both the private sector and other foundations and the public and um, a university. So, again, it just depends on the types of science. Looking ahead to the formulation of the 2018 Farm Bill, I'm interested, is there information, is there results that you're going to be able to share that will help to prove to decision makers that this foundation has its place and is serving a valuable role? Yeah, um, it's a great question, again, because research can be more long-term. We may not have immediate research results, except perhaps in a program that we call ROAR, which is Rapid Outcomes for from Agriculture Research. That is a program that looks at emerging pests and pathogens that are could potentially be a crisis situation for producers. We give one-year grants. We expect outcomes very quickly. The idea of that program is to swoop in and put some money on a very serious problem before the rest of the USDA or others can get organized to um, to fund uh, what could be more long-term research. Um, however, we do think that putting our money in challenge areas and in the types of projects that we're going to launch, which will demonstrate um, the innovation, even without the results, I think there will be a lot uh, to be said about the types of programs that we're funding and the value of those programs. It's really important to us to always convey to Congress and to to other decision makers about the outcomes of our research. We have a very close relationship with Congress as well as the USDA, who we partner with very closely. So we're always sharing information about our progress and, and where we're going with our science. Well, Sally Rocky, we want to thank you for taking time from your schedule to spend with us here on Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and you have an open forum. Great. I think there's no better time to be involved in uh, food and ag research as as right at this moment. It's really an incredible time for science because we have this this confluence of technological advances coupled with what we know, which is leading to incredible acceleration of science and great scientific opportunity. And for agriculture, we are often at the forefront of this science. We take new technologies and adopt them very rapidly and readily. So it's a, an it's amazing time for agriculture research. There's a big swirl right now about agricultural sciences. Groups that never really invested in agricultural sciences or worked in that area are now working um, in agriculture and food sciences because it really is the place to be today. So we believe that ag science and research is essential to ensure 
our global leadership. And it also, science and research is the economic driver of the United States. We're a technology and a knowledge-based economy. And so I believe that what FAR is going to contribute, as well as, as what the other parts of the ag research community are going to contribute, is going to have a major impact on our agriculture production systems going forward. Our thanks to Dr. Sally Rocky, Executive Director of the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. Learn more at chsinc.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.